This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Thank you, Thomas. Uh, who's, who's here from Reach London? Anyone? Hey! Okay. Thomas is uh, hosting Reach London, and uh, it's delightful to have a bunch of people from the US here helping to reach this city with the gospel. Isn't that an outstanding legacy from, from Tim Keller? Yesterday they had a meeting. Uh, Thomas invited me to come and be interviewed <laughs> at the beginning of this thing. And I was standing at the back of this meeting. There are 120 people or so there. And Thomas said, be there at three for your interview. And uh, I arrived, I'm about soon after half two, and I'm watching Thomas, he's preaching away, and I'm thinking, this is good, this is great. And then uh, as, as three o'clock approached, he said, uh, could Ben come up now? So I came and stood, and he was standing in the middle, preaching away, and I stood just facing him, and uh, he continued to preach. And he preached on and on, and then the musicians started to play, and it was then that I realized he had said, could the band come up, please? <laughs> so, uh, so you guys who are from Reach London, that was what was going on then. <laughs> That's why this guy just stood there and stared at Thomas for the last five minutes of his message. So that's just to explain that. It's a delight and a privilege to be sitting here, though, with Colin, uh, who is leading a ministry, which I have candidly said to many, I think is the most important ministry that's happening in the world. Because when I first encountered the Gospel Coalition, they were just simply seeking to resource people who are, who are using excellent truths to push back the darkness, planting churches. And I was listening to podcast after podcast after podcast, and think, this guy, these guys are helpful. Because I'm just trying to plant in the darkness of London. And that guy, he is helpful. He's establishing me. That guy's blessed. And so what an absolute privilege to be sitting here with Colin. Of course, we're all going to be talking a little about, a little, we're going to talk a lot about uh, Tim Keller's ministry. And we're going to put this out on the Christian Heritage London podcast. So you'll be able to hear that. I interviewed many leaders, including Neil and others for the Christian Heritage London podcast. And we talk about their heroes and so on. But I'll just start with a couple of things. I, I'm sure we all remember Keller taught us all the gospel isn't the ABC. We used to think, he said, the gospel's the ABC. It starts us off. And then you get into the advanced stuff. He says, no, I realize the gospel's the A to Z. It was Keller who helped me to read the whole Bible <clears throat> through the lens of the gospel. What a blessing that was. What a constant encouragement that has been. And I had the privilege once of asking him a question, and I frankly have told many people, it was a life-changing answer. I said, how did you plant that church, just your family in Manhattan, without just coming across as a salesman? And he said, asking questions. He says, when you can tell your friend, you can say to your friend, is this the problem? Have I got it right? This is your problem with Christianity. This is, this is your problem, have I got it right? He says, that's a key moment changed my entire approach. It was then I started to see. Jesus always answered questions with questions. I came across Randy Newman's outstanding but questioning evangelism and started to realize, this is how you get to know somebody. You ask them things. It was a life-changing, it was a life-changing little bit of advice. So I'm sure many of us have similar memories of this father, as uh, Matt has, has called him. But what a delight to be sitting here with you, Colin. First time in London, hey? First time in London and a holiday 
you know, I thought it was interesting that you celebrate this holiday as well. I'm told it's Thanksgiving here, <laughs> but uh, back home it's uh, Independence Day. Halloween, but, isn't uh, it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for the fireworks later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, first time, first time in London at all. It, it's it's odd. I um, was actually all the way back in uh, in college. I was a European history major, and so um, I've always been fascinated by this part of the world and London especially. So. Glad to be here for the first time. Oh, thank you so much for coming. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to see. Of course, uh, Tim Keller himself was fascinated by London's church history. I was, uh, it was extraordinary to see in the last few days he was uh, saying, when people asked him for his advice, it's very simple. He was quoting John Owen. Yeah. Think London's church history. It's an awesome thing. <laughs> well, there was a, a part in there where he would often vacation in England. And it's with, with friends and, of course, his wife. That was kind of her favorite place, Kathy's favorite place to come, is England. And they would say that they'd be pulling around some place and some overlook somewhere in England. And Tim would stop and give a long lecture on the history of that particular place. <laughs> they'd say, how do you learn this? He'd stayed up all night reading everything he could about that region. Oh, wow. uh, so another thing that was in the book, Kathy... Uh, Kathy, I mean, they're both Anglophiles, right? So, uh, but Kathy had actually, she thought she was C.S. Lewis's only American fan <laughs> as a preteen. And so she thought this poor English author who has no fans in America. So they corresponded. Kathy was one of the last people to ever correspond with C.S. Lewis. Um, and then came here as a teenager to the Kilns, to Oxford, uh, right shortly after he died to see him. So... Mm. Long, long history there with, with the Kellers in England. So I think of all the places and on and all the dates that we could be yeah. uh, having this remembrance and celebration, I think this is appropriate. Yeah, superb. That, that story that he told about Lewis was itself so powerful. The idea that within his last few weeks, uh, she was right to Lewis. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it was, in, it was so mundane. I mean, the things that they would talk about in the book, we've, we've got a picture of one of the letters uh, not the last one, but one of the letters. But she's complaining about her school newspaper editor. And Lewis is, is, is you know, understanding with her saying, that's right, editors are the worst. <laughs> Just corresponding in that way. But uh, it's, it's helpful to see that in, my book is a book about the influences on Tim. That's so and it's, uh, it's so true that Kathy has always been that biggest influence yeah. on Tim. That she had introduced him to... Almost all of the most famous, kind of all the most, the biggest influences on him. And that started with authors like Lewis and, and Tolkien. Mm. I, I remember him saying very powerfully, he said, if you read one person, you become a clone. If you read two people, you become confused. But he said, if you read 10 people, you get a voice. And if you read 100, you're Tim Keller. <laughs> so um, that, that's one of the, somebody had mentioned earlier that, uh, to use an Americanism, of course, uh, that Tim was like the Forrest Gump of evangelicalism. He's always popping up in these different places. And that was one of the things that I wanted to do with telling his story that, that I thought he would identify with, is he'd want us, as we were learning about him, we'd want to see about Jesus above mm. all. But we would want to be then introduced to the people who taught him mm, about Jesus. Mm, mm. And that was John Owen. Mm. And that was J.I. Packer. And that was Martin Lloyd-Jones. And that was John Stott. And on and on and on. Up to a hundred. Alec Mateer. We could keep going on mm. and on and on John about Newton. that. John Newton, of course. Uh, Kathy, whenever she's discipling, one of the first things she gives anybody are the letters of John Newton. Which are 
to my reading, unparalleled in their pastoral and theological wisdom mm. in there. Yeah, so we could continue to, to go on and on there. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you see, it was, it was, I mean, a hundred is maybe a little bit exaggerated, but mm-hmm. it was how he, kind of his essential gifting was how he synthesized mm. so many of them into a coherent ministry. And, mm. and the rest of us are not going to have 100 people that we're going to look at that, but Tim would want us to have more than him. He'd want us to be reading other people. He'd especially want us to be reading the people that he read, yeah, yeah. not just him. Yeah, you've served us that way. Well, you're drawing attention to Lovelace and Harvey yeah. Kahn and the, uh, Jack Miller. The Leslie Newman again. Yeah, this uh, is it. Thomas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. And they're yeah. getting these people who, he's he drawing the good from them, drawing the good from trying to find so, trying to find something which he can feed us with. Well, not, not to mention that, but today especially, how uncommon is it that you can say, I will learn from somebody even that I disagree with on other issues. Like another example, I mean, we could just stay in Great Britain with N.T. Wright. Mm. You know, they had profound differences on the Reformation and on justification by faith alone. But Tim would always recommend the resurrection of the Son of God as the best work on the on the resurrection, Richard Baucom. There's another one we could yeah. talk about, Jesus yeah, yeah. and the eyewitnesses. Yeah. Uh, there with that apologetic work. So even when there might have been disagreement elsewhere, and that's why I, I think you can see here that so many of us come from some different backgrounds. He would want us to also say, "Learn from me everything you know that that you can." But if you disagree with some other places, that's that's just what he did with others. As well. Now, what you tend to find, <clears throat> however is that you f- the, the, the attractive, the winsome nature oh. of, a, uh, uh, of, of, of a favorite. Mm-hmm. People tend to love the winsomeness. Yeah. And now sometimes people have criticized, or Killer has been a little criticized for, he's just so friendly, just so darn friendly. <laughs> it's like with that <laughs> Superman 2. You're just so nice, Clark. <laughs> but the, uh, but, the, the, uh, but the thing with him, what distinguishes him from a, just a vague liberal guy? Oh. Well, I found that you can look at this a lot of different ways, but um, one of the ways that I looked at it, inspired by Tim, going back to 2015, a book I did called Blind Spots, is there's, there's courage, there's compassion, and there's commission. And different churches and different individual leaders will be good at one thing. They'll be very courageous to preach the truth. Some people will be very focused on compassionate ministry. Some will be focused very much on the mission. But what I was trying to do in that book was to help people to understand some of why Keller appealed to so many different people. Ultimately, the example here is Jesus. Come on. I mean, Jesus is who we're talking about here, but so many of us will latch on to one aspect of Jesus that we really like, and then we sort of ignore a lot of the other aspects in there. So one of the things about Tim that I don't think the sort of the, I mean, first of all, if we're called to be, if winsome means that we're living out by the fruit of the Spirit, then that's just what we need to be doing. It's not a strategy, it's a way of life in the spirit. And so that's one thing. But second, when you look at him, you, you can see he was a confessional Westminster Presbyterian in New York City. I mean, that, and, and a specialist in apologetics. He and I helped to start uh, the, the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics about arguing, arguing with people. He was never shy about arguing with people, even if he did it in a nice way, as he talked about. But at the same time, he was fully dedicated to mercy ministry. In fact, his academic specialty was how the reformed diaconates of Glasgow, Edinburgh, uh, Amsterdam, and Geneva had really been the, the 
kind of the origins of social services mm. in the modern West. Mm. That was his, and, and kind of his work was to get churches back to that kind of mercy ministry. Hope for New York is his legacy there as well. But then one reason that so many of us are here right now is because of his emphasis on church planting, the London Project, city to city. He was very much engaged in all of the missional conversations, Leslie Newmigan, all that sort of stuff. So the, the thing about, you could look at him from a few different vantage points, but I think part of what made him, um, you know, with the winsome debates, part of what made him appealing around the world is because he was not narrowly American. And by narrowly American, I mean somebody who was consumed by the culture wars and our politics, which allowed him to be more easily translatable in other contexts around the world. Uh So in America, you get a lot of that winsome, which basically just meant you're not angry enough about certain issues and you don't vote for certain candidates. But but that's exactly why we could still be learning so much from him in so many different places. um, yes, I love it. You're not angry. I had an interesting conversation. I was staying with my parents, and uh, my mom and I were getting into the whole, oh my goodness, the world's going down the toilet. It's, oh my God. And we knew that we've had that conversation. Everyone's, <laughs> all Christians at the moment are going, can you believe? And interesting, a lot of non believers are now having those conversations. Yeah. But what was fascinating was my dad just uh, walked out of the room. And I found that striking because uh, it was as though my heart is too. Um, it's too special. Let's mm-hmm. keep that out of my heart. Mm-hmm. Now, when you, hear, when you say, I never heard Keller criticize anyone. Yeah. Whoa, hang on a minute. Yeah. World-influencing leader. Never criticize anyone. Well, and really what I'm referring to there is our private conversations. So, you know, it's, it's, you might be, perhaps you had a reputation in public for being winsome. You're the nice guy out there. But privately is where you tell people what you really think about somebody. See, that's the difference we heard earlier about don't meet your heroes. Yeah. And that's precisely, I mean, it's how I felt going into working on this book. I thought, well, what am I really going to learn about him? And I did learn some of his significant weaknesses. But again, what you saw, as we heard earlier, is what you got yeah. with him. Yeah. And he just, he just refused. There was always a sense... And I am saying always deliberately here that no matter what you might say about somebody, he would always flip it back to find something positive in that person. And it wasn't because he, it wasn't because he did, he always agreed with the person. It was just he was looking at how to build bridges with others. And I think it goes back to what you said earlier about asking good questions with non-believers. He was always looking for that bridge. So, so much of our evangelism and apologetics is starting out with what we disagree on. One of Tim's key innovations was to focus on what we agree on as both made in the image of God. So it would tend to be, and this is one reason why he loved, I'm I'm just going to stick in Great Britain here, uh, Tom Holland's Uh work, especially. It's why he resonated and read Dominion and was like, everybody has to read Dominion because it was built on the premise of the common grace made in the image of God. Our unbelieving friends or our non-Christian friends and family and neighbors in many ways want good things. Yes. Now not everything they want is good, but that's just the way the human heart works. But they want good things. They don't realize that without Jesus they can't have any of it. But the bridge to get there is to help them to see on their own merits they can't get what they want. And that's when Jesus comes in there. So there was just that sense in which even with his most bitter critics, 
He might, he would just look for, and this is something he counseled all of us with, is when somebody's criticizing you, stop first and recognize a couple things. One, there probably is a grain of truth, right. at least in what they're saying. Yeah. And second, you've probably heard other leaders say this as well, but they don't even know half of how bad it really is. Wow. You know, in, in your heart. You know, nobody else has really seen how bad it is sometimes in here. And there but the grace of God mm. uh, do we go. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, he did not, um, not make a habit in public or private of criticizing others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. And do you remember, what was it, when did you first meet him yourself? Well, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Thomas and I did not compare notes, but uh, I met him at that event in 2007, uh, the first Gospel Coalition public event, and that's where he gave his talk on gospel-centered ministry. Wow. Uh, and so ran through the whole Old Testament into the New Testament about how Jesus is true and better fulfillment of all of these promises and uh, of different figures in the Old Testament. And I had the same experience that Thomas had. I was a, just about to start seminary at the time. And for me, what was so revolutionary was seeing Christ in all of Scripture, mm. which he, of course, learned from Ed Clowney. But that was, and then hear him from Gerhardus Voss and on and on back to the Bible itself. But um, that's where I first met him. And I was working on my first book, that, which came out the first year that his major books came out in 2008, and he just didn't want anything to do with it. Um, so, and then he was, but then we started editing books together after that. That book, was that YRR? That's Young Restless Reformed. And so what's fascinating, somebody was asking me earlier about that book, and what's fascinating about that is that I published it in 2008, he's not in that book. So somebody was asking me how much have things changed in there. He's not in that book. But his, from 2008 to 2022, was all of his major publishing, just in that window. Wow. And so he didn't mature over time. He started publishing as a mature pastor, and in 14 years gave us, you know, a canon of literature that is unlike anything I think we've ever really seen. I mean, this is probably an exaggeration, but I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here, unlike anything we've really seen before in church history. I mean, so a lot of times your publishing window is a lot longer mm -hmm. and over that period of time, but he, he died fairly young at 72 and didn't start publishing until his late 50s. Mm. So all of that is in that window since that, that book came out. Yeah, strike. I remember Dick Lucas said to me, between the wars, there's like two, two uh, commentaries on John in this country. I said, what a different world we now inhabit. And uh, to think that you're not mentioning Tim Keller in Young yeah. Restless Reform is extraordinary. Yeah, it, it was, at the time it felt like, well, I should try to include him because I know that he's an influential figure, but it wasn't widely known. Mm. And in fact, at the first meeting that, of what became the Gospel Coalition in 2005, Don Carson, who did his PhD at Cambridge, he's Canadian, but taught in the United States, he says, Here's Tim Keller. He's helping to put this on with me. He's really not very well known. You really should get to know this guy. That was just 2005. Wow. This wasn't, wasn't that long ago. Yeah, striking. Now, now, when he began the Gospel Coalition, I remember him saying, he, he had such a beautiful missional idea behind it at the beginning. He said, we're going to try... Uh, he said, I think he said, we don't want to be a denomination. Right. I think he was trying... He said, he talked in terms of, we want to try to find in various locations... What are the idols in this area? Yeah. And I thought that was, it was so strategic. I thought, wow. Well, that was one of the things, and, and I, I obviously do not know London well enough or all the different pockets of London well enough, but, but he was clearly able to do that. So he would talk about New York City, 
And specifically, he was working in, in Manhattan. And Manhattan would be different from the different boroughs. But he identified fairly early on just this idol of you come to New York to make a name for yourself. Okay. And that's so deeply embedded in, in American culture. I was just watching, for some strange coincidence, some of Hamilton. Uh, earlier today, some clips in there. But of course, you know, one of the major songs in there is about New York is the greatest city in the world. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy that everybody comes there to make a name for themselves. So the idolatry there is, is making a name for yourself, whether it's on Broadway or Wall Street or wherever else. But see, Boston is different. Boston was much more like Cambridge or Oxford. It's about, it's about, about what you know. It's about your knowledge, not about your money or your name, but about your knowledge there. And so that was one of the things that's helped me. I do, like you do, these history tours in London. I do that in Birmingham, Alabama. And it helps, it just, that perspective has helped me to identify, okay, what are the things, and for me, in Birmingham, Alabama, it's recreation. Everybody just loves, they, 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 they work to, to have fun. They, they just, but Tim helped me to get that perspective of how to love people by gently guiding them toward Christ as better than whatever they might choose to worship otherwise, even if they identify as Christians. Hmm. And I think that's, if, if anybody here is like me, that's how I often felt reading Tim's works or listening to his sermons, was very much convicted about my sin at levels that I didn't know wow. could be that deep. Okay. It's like, oh, this is not superficial. This right. is really getting... This is getting close to home now. Yeah, yeah. This isn't just behavior. <laughs> no, it's not just behavior. It, it's about that sin nature that is much deeper and that even good things can be bad things when they get in the place of God. But of course, he's always bringing it back. He was always bringing it back to Jesus as, you know, in some specific way through his, his work, his person, some, some specific way meeting that need and showing us the way to the Father, the mm -hmm. way home to the Father. Yeah. Um, so you're always ending encouraged though as well. And yeah. that combination of a conviction and encouragement yes. is I think one reason why so many people resonated with oh, him. Oh, so true. Yeah, and I was, I was fascinated because of the, the friendly, and because you think this is just such obvious gospel stuff, it did fascinate me when you saw Jesus' words at last being fulfilled. He's gonna, there, there will be persecution. Because oh. you could have said, this guy is just so friendly, it's so obviously gospel, it's so fresh. But the trouble is, there must be something wrong because there's no persecution. But no. He was, in the end, people are like, Wah. well, I mean, he, he loved passages like John 16, 33, take heart, I've overcome the world, but in this world you will have much tribulation. I mean, he liked to talk about that a lot. Or First Peter 2, this sense in which, you know, the, uh, we will glorify God even as we're being persecuted. I remember I was coming back from an event in Boston and I'd made some comment, I think, on social media or something like that about a radio station I'd heard. And it was uh, from, in this case, it happened to be the gay rights community, and it was some very aggressive, vitriolic comments about Christians. And Tim actually called me early in the morning. He wanted to know exactly what they were saying because this was a major concern that he had of, of persecution. Like he understood that this was a precarious situation. I think what a lot of people misunderstand about seeing him as such a nice guy or as winsome is that when he went to New York, there were, as far as I was talking with people, maybe in all of Manhattan, three churches that evangelicals would talk about attending. Now the boroughs were a different situation, but about three different churches. So we talk about the culture and how bad it's gotten. And yet now in New York, there are far more churches mm. preaching the gospel of grace from scripture 
than there were at that time. And the city was way harder back then mm. in the 1970s and 1980s. The crime was much higher. Um, the quality of life was much lower. Um, so I think a lot of the narratives that we have about the way our culture is going don't necessarily match mm. a lot of the realities on the ground. I think yeah. they're filtered through some media that have yeah. vested interests. That's so true. I mean, actually, actually, when you meet, it's like it's interesting meeting non-believers now who are a little concerned about this. Yeah. This woke thing's going a little far. <laughs> and you think, that's interesting. interesting. But it, it's yeah. one of the things when Ken Brownell and I were talking recently about the, the significance of some people in terms of the immediate legacy Oh. But for some people, you have an influence. Yeah. So, for example, the legacy that, that followed Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, mm-hmm. you can't say there's an obvious network. Right. It's not, he didn't lead something. Which, but the influence. Mm-hmm. But the influence of, of Keller, as you speak to people who have been in New York City, speaking to our friend Laura Fells, she was there at the beginning of yes, Redeemer. Yeah. Laura, and yeah. she, you know Laura. Mm-hmm. How jolly good. So she's, One of the people I interviewed. You know, oh, really? Yeah. How jolly good. Mm-hmm. So, she, so she, talk in terms of the number of churches that he helped, where yeah. there's absolutely no affiliation. Yeah. It was just, I'm encouraging this young guy. And now you see churches. churches. Or how many people, friends of mine, like Thomas's story, who moved to New York, who never would have done that before. Again, coming from the deep south of the United States, where I've lived for the last decade, something interestingly had shifted. If you had told people before, I'm going to New York, they'd say, why? Why would you want to go to this godless place? Mm -hmm. Then something shifted. They said, I wish I could go. Why? So I could go to Redeemer Presbyterian Church and hear from Tim Keller. But of course now, this is how it always works when the Lord will lift somebody up. We may not be able to trace it in the same ways, but just as we're, I think, representing in this room, that legacy spreads out in all kinds of different ways, and you might not be able to write a book about it, right? but that doesn't mean the Spirit isn't working, perhaps in even some more profound ways. Right. Uh, Billy Graham was the first person I ever worked on a book about, and people always had the question, who's the next Billy Graham? Well, we've seen the Lord has not raised up another Billy Graham to do these you know, months-long London crusades, as they were called back then in the 1950s. And yet his influence is pervasive in all kinds of different areas, including institutions, even if the younger generations never even remembered the most famous evangelist in American history. But that seems to be the way the Lord works, because it's about him, uh-huh. not about us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which was the first thing in that message that Thomas was referring to earlier, is that the Bible's not about you, it's about God. And once you affect that worldview change, that, that perspective change, it changes everything in your yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. There's a precious thing about his example as well, wasn't it? That you sensed that he was kind of saying stuff. But you felt like, uh, I think something that Matt said earlier, is it's that, that, that you felt like he was like your, your nice dad. <laughs> you kind of felt like I could uh, just chat about this. I, I think. But he, he wasn't saying, you haven't done enough. Yeah. His whole message was, we haven't. Well, I think hopefully one thing that you'll see in the book is to understand some of where that came from in his own personal life. Yeah. And that's something that um, nobody had ever been able to do before. But I got permission from Tim and Kathy to talk to a number of different people, including Tim's sister. And so his younger sister is the only one of their immediate family who's still living now because mm-hmm. their younger brother died of complications related to AIDS in the mm-hmm. 1990s, mm-hmm. which is another story in the book there. But all of a sudden, when, when one of Tim's associates had told me that the book The Prodigal God from 2008 is Tim's spiritual autobiography, I didn't really understand what that meant until I understood the home 
that he grew up in, mm -hmm. with a father who was often gone, and when he was present, he was entirely silent, and with an Italian Catholic mother who was absolutely dominant. Wow. And very much, and she went from Catholicism to Lutheranism, had Tim baptized in both, <laughs> and then jumped over to a sort of a Wesleyan holiness fundamentalism. But the, this, you know, actually she left the, she left the Catholic Church, as her daughter said, because the Catholics weren't legalistic enough. <laughs> well, she said they were not obedient enough All right. in there. And so one of the anecdotes, and I did this throughout the book, there's anecdotes when Tim and Kathy would bring their boys to visit their grandparents, Tim's mother would follow them around with Windex and spray everything that they touched. And there's things like that that give you a window into grace that liberates. Come on. That, that changes our lives. And, you know, we don't necessarily have as many examples of that sort of legalism, but I do sense in our culture a return to this fear. Amen. Of ever saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing, and, and where's the grace? Is how could I ever be restored? And so I wonder if if we might be coming back around to a time when that same grace that that Tim felt so powerfully liberated by mm. might again appeal more broadly to our yeah, non-Christian yeah, neighbors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, there are a couple of things I specifically wanted to ask you about on this, and um, one is the the question of leadership at this time because of course I mean frankly it's difficult to imagine too many young men who'd be saying no, I, I want to become a pastor yeah. it's like saying you know here's the face take aim you yeah. know cause, uh, yeah. because because uh, yeah, that's it social media you know I did you hear when Tim Keller died uh, some people did come up saying he actually was spiritually abusive he mm. oppressed people and you go how well, as it happens, it was a bit shocking. He actually oh. proposed that some people should try to read the entire Bible in a year. <laughs> to which you go, you know what? I don't really know what to do with someone who's that oppression. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah. but the question of leadership, what, what lessons can we learn? You knew the man, you studied the man. Well, th this is something that um, I haven't talked about very much at all, but... Um, Sometimes when you work on a biography like this, and, and Tim and I worked closely together, the question comes up of what are you allowed to say and what are you not allowed to say? And, one of the, and there was actually a recent biography of a major American figure where the, the family was explicit. They said, you can't say anything negative about this person in there. But I don't find that very helpful as a leader <laughs> to find that my heroes were perfect. You know, there's only one hero of ours who was perfect and he gave his life for us, yeah. Jesus Christ. Amen. But the rest of us are, you know, not like that. So one of the things that I've heard consistently, especially from people um, from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in the early years, was how helpful it was that we talked about some of his weaknesses. Mm. And so he mentions, he, he would routinely say to me and to others, I was not a very good leader. I pushed back on him. I do think he was an exceptional leader, but it's very clear that he was a very bad manager. And I mean, I experienced that myself as somebody who worked with him. Um, but I think it's the thing about leadership is I'm not sure where we got the idea that leaders are somehow a different class that don't have significant oh, weaknesses amen. Amen. or sin patterns. And so when, when you think about a pastor or any sort of church leader, anybody you might work with, and you might say you have the category of administration, of teaching, 
of evangelism, uh, counseling, let's just say that, teaching, administration, and counseling. If your pastor is good at one of those things, let's be grateful for that. If your pastor is good at two of those things, that's pretty exceptional. I don't think I've ever met a pastor who's good at three, all three of those things. Outstanding. But the difficulty for all of us is we are tempted to expect that of our leaders, but I don't think we would want that to be expected of of us. And so there is a difference, there's a categorical difference between unrealistic expectations and actual spiritual abuse. And there is spiritual abuse and other kinds of abuse out there from some leaders. Thankfully, that wasn't something that I found with Tim. Mm -hmm. But what I did find was somebody who was willing to admit several times where his administration was simply overwhelmed and that he desperately needed help from other leaders who were gifted in different ways. He just did not have any administrative gifts. And also with all all of his teaching and writing and visionary leadership, he did a lot of counseling early on, but it burned him out. Mm. It, I don't think I don't know if people understand how intense of an experience that is for the counselor. And so he burned out on that. He didn't do as much of that later, but he was gifted and it came out through his preaching. Mm. But I do think that's one of the challenges is that sometimes leaders feel as though they have to be good at everything and we expect that. Yes. But when you look at our best leaders like Tim Keller and realize was really good at one of those things. He was very bad at another one of those things. He was fairly good at the other one, but didn't have time to do it. That should give us perspective yes, for everyone else. That is so helpful. That is so helpful. Especially when <laughs> someone comes in and they, they hear you preach the gospel and they feel like he's got the magic power. And you, no. you're, I'm not, a, there's no Christian guru. As you say, there's a no. savior and there's a no. few of us pointing at him. <laughs> that's no. outstanding. That's such a helpful point. I just want quickly one yeah. question. People did have a go at him later. Yeah. He wasn't sufficiently whatever. Yeah. Did that hurt him? Or I, how much? Did yeah, that hurt? I mean, it did. Um, not really. I, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think. Like he, cancer really freed him from a lot of the cares of this world, and so a lot of the negativity happened, especially in the last three years. Because it corresponded with, well, really, I mean, I think we all remember 2020. That's the year he got the cancer diagnosis. And you never know what the Lord is doing. One thing that's interesting to me is that he chose to resign when he was a little bit younger, 67, in 2017. He would have turned 70, a kind of a common retirement age in the United States for pastors, in 2020. It was really a blessing that he stopped earlier because that would have been very difficult to be hit with COVID-19 as well, especially in New York, as well as at the same time with um, his retirement in there. So the thing that he, there's an interview I did on a podcast with him called uh, Life in Books and Everything. And I walked away from that interview. This was early in 2021. And I remember thinking the Holy Spirit just anointed that moment and was was affecting a kind of personal revival in him. So he definitely heard the criticism because those last three years he spent a lot of time at home with Kathy on the internet. <laughs> so he heard a lot of it, but he seemed to have really been liberated by his mortality in exactly the way that Jesus tells all of us that we should be liberated because we don't know about tomorrow. So to live for him, 
not to live for our own reputation. So in some sense, he seemed to have been freed from those cares of the world. But I will say this. He said something else in there that I hope will make it more realistic for all of us. He said, I've realized that my wife and I have each been really a lot more, not quite miserable, but frustrated than we should have been. He said, we weren't living for eternity. We were living out of our kind of temporary wants. He said, for Kathy, she was happy, only really happy when she was on vacation in England. Hmm. (laughs) So it was always like you're preparing to go to England or you're coming down off your trip to England. But but the the point was, he, he was trying to say, but that was kind of her idol. He said, for him, he was always caught up in what do I have to do tomorrow? Okay. All the things I have to do. Well, all of a sudden, cancer came in and said, you don't have tomorrow. Wow. You don't have any more trips to England, and you don't have tomorrow. And it liberated them to kind of see their own world from the perspective of God's grace in a kind of like a, a high-definition color in that moment. And so the criticism came in that period, and it just... He was aware of it, but it seemed to bounce off him. You know, like I would sit there sometimes and say, Tim, why are you doing this on Twitter? Like, this does not make any sense right now. Don't be doing this. But he wasn't bothered by it. Like, he wasn't hurt by it. He just seemed to be living for a different world, which is, I think, what he would commend for all of us. Yeah, amen. There was a time recently on my old Twitter when he, he got involved in a bit of a conversation and it was thrilling because it was, it was electrifying, but also it was, it was luminously gracious. Oh. You know, and somehow in two, 240 characters, someone would have a go at him and he'd say, oh, but, but I did it. Where do you get this from? And how can I not be your friend? And you think, oh. and someone wrote, how, did Tim Kelly just come into the room and show you the smartest person on Twitter? It was very, <laughs> it was very Well, it's, it's normally, he will, as I said before, he would, he would seek to find the good and he would seek kind of a conciliatory position, like a mediating position. Right. And, and you just don't expect that. The medium is not set up to do that. So yeah. my frustration was <laughs> often saying, Tim, Twitter doesn't work that way. <laughs> like, you can't do that. But he was intent. He told me one time, he's like, Colin, I'm going to show that it's possible. Yeah. He, I'm going to show that you can do this on Twitter. I found okay? it helpful. I found it helpful. <laughs> okay, we got some questions here. Can okay. I? Uh, are we don't write that down? Okay, so um, I, this is, uh, okay, this is a great question. When so many high-profile Christian leaders have been caught in different scandals, what helped Tim Keller stay the course and stay faithful to the end? Well, Kathy was one. Um, so I don't think necessarily the Kellers are a perfect model for the rest of us. They met in seminary. Well, they didn't meet in seminary, but that's where they really got to know each other. Um, Kathy is an exceptionally strong uh, person in so many different ways. Um, that, that strong union together was so pivotal. But I, 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 let me just give an example. The worst period of their lives was after September 11th, 2001. And it's only partially about the, uh, the terrorist attacks. Uh, Kathy was struggling with Crohn's disease, mm. and this was one of the two major managerial, really, disasters of Tim's career. And he thought, I'm going to have to step away from ministry, and I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to, you know, take care of Kathy, essentially. And um, that's when they came up, and you may have seen this in, in his book on prayer, but Tim talks about how Kathy approached him and said, Tim, 
If a doctor told you that if you didn't take this pill every single day, you will die, you would take that pill. And she said, that's prayer. We have to pray together every single day or we are not going to make it. So you see there the union of not only that strong marriage, but that marriage wasn't about the marriage per se. It's an Ephesians 5 situation. It's pointing us toward Christ and the church. So their marriage was pointing to the dependence in Christ and specifically on prayer. Uh, so I think those were a couple of the different areas. And I think also Kathy was, was helpful to keep Tim humble <laughs> in a lot of ways as well. You, you know, you, you want your spouse in some ways to be impressed with you in some ways, but fundamentally unimpressed with you. And Kathy was that kind of combination of she loves and loved and loves Tim so much. And yet you knew that if he didn't, if he messed up something in the sermon, he was going to hear about it. Um, and he might've even heard about it during the sermon <laughs> in there. So that kind of combination, they, they have been, and, and were a special couple. Oh, they're, they're hearing the way he refers to her in sermons is very, very precious. I think it, it, it undermines the idea that his uh, complementarianism was chauvinistic because he so obviously adored his wife. Well, so let me give you a quick response on that because of that, you know, the male leadership question in there, something that other people have criticized him for. The moment about them going to New York City, Tim comes back and he says, I don't think we should go. We shouldn't go start that church. And Kathy says, why? And he says, well, because I just don't think that'd be good for you and for the kids because you have a good situation here in Philadelphia. And she says, no, don't you dare put that on me. If I have a problem with this, I'll go to the Lord. <laughs> you need to make a decision. You're the man. Wow. <laughs> it was like, that's, that was their kind of complementarianism. <laughs> and sure enough, she did. She went to their church, Jack Miller's church, um, and she took communion and she resolved before the Lord, this is a calling, we're going to go. And, and ulti- I mean, that was, that was their kind of complementarianism. Yeah. <laughs> You're the man. You make a decision. <laughs> uh, this is a good question. What were some of the dis- disciplines that Reverend Keller practiced to keep him uh, grounded in the faith? We'll stay here in Great Britain again. Robert Murray McShane. We've already mentioned him earlier. His uh, read the Bible in the year. Oh, yeah. um, that was the most consistent one that he commended. It was, it was that daily prayer. And I think... Um, you know, piety or pietism can have a negative connotation depending on the context. But Tim was one of those people who unashamedly believed that going back to John Owen, you truly commune with God in prayer, that this is yeah. something you experience. Yeah. This is not something you just do. This is not something you just sort of follow through on. This is something you experience. And so, as you see there in his last years of life, that cancer was driving him toward deeper, more desperate and intimate experiences of God, especially through prayer. Uh, so, and uh, I'll say one, one other thing. Um, you know, I don't think I've, I've mentioned this in, in public, um, but um, the only worship service that the Kellers were able to participate in that I'm aware of from the cancer all the way through to his death was actually in Bethesda, Maryland at the National Cancer Institute toward the end of his life with, uh, with Francis Collins, the former head of the National Institutes of Health in the United States, or the top scientific medical research um, official. 
And uh, you may have seen him from all the COVID-19 things. But um, they were friends, same age. And, um, and <laughs> they said, Look, we're going to do a worship service together. Francis Collins on the piano. We're going to do it right here in this narthex, essentially, of this cancer center. And Tim said, okay, we'll do it on one condition. I get to give talks, little sermons about all the background of all the different hymns. And I get to choose them. Come on. <laughs> in there. So at some level, part of the disciplines was the, the hymns and their rich history. Another thing that would, of course, draw him to Great Britain. Yeah. And in that history, so, so many of the great hymns, of course, come yeah. from there. Yeah, it's a, I, I'm taking you on Friday to, to yeah. John Newton's church. Wonderful. And I love telling people in that little 120-seat building, this... Uh, Tim Keller said, John Newton, greatest pastor I've ever come across. Yeah. I love that because he's a little church, a little local church. And here's a guy who's just, uh, who's just faithful, <laughs> just faithful, keeping it to the yeah. grace of God. Okay, I want to ask one more question. Uh, what insights can we glean from Tim Keller that may help us navigate and talk publicly about controversial sub- uh, topics winsomely mm-hmm. without being labeled a bigot? All right, so I know that we're probably over time, and so I'm not going to talk about this at great length. Um, So one of the last things that Tim did was, I mentioned this earlier, was to start the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. And I work with a number of people at the Gospel Coalition as the executive director of this center with um, Andrew Wilson, of course, here, Glenn Scrivener, Dan Strange, I saw in there as well. if you look, I've published this in Christianity Today magazine in the United States. It's also um, a version of in my book. Um, in 2017, Tim was awarded the Kuiper Prize for Excellence in Reformed Public Theology from Princeton University, but they subsequently, Princeton Theological Seminary, they subsequently withdrew that because of his views on homosexuality and women's ordination. But he gave the talk anyway. And the talk was his exchange with the missiology of Leslie Newbegin, and it was more or less what he suggested as a new uh, sort of a trajectory for the church in the West, and I engage with it at length in the book because I think it really was one of his most significant messages. You can also find this from Redeemer City to City. Um, it's just how to reach the West again. Just a short little booklet. You can do a lot worse than going through that booklet with your church or just yourself because that gives you a beautiful, wonderful agenda for how to do that. So, great question. That question is really the heartbeat of, behind all of my ministry, trying to carry this on. Mm. So, I can't answer it short, so you'll just have to go read the book, or, or go to Christianity Today and read that article, or just talk to Thomas about Leslie uh, Newbegin. <laughs> that's, that's a superb answer. It's brilliant. No, I won't finish here, but can I just quickly pray for you and for... Uh, Thank you. Let's pray for Kathy Keller. Yeah. Our Father, we love you because of Jesus. We thank you that uh, it's just a precious thing to recognize that, uh, as uh, was said earlier, Tim Keller wouldn't be talking about him. And we, what an example he was in that sense, even knowing he had a, he had a, 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 a date that he was going to be finished by and saying, I want to finish everything I've got to do before that. That was extraordinary. And we, we thank you for his example. He pointed us to Jesus. Thank you for your, your gifts to the church. We thank you, Father, for Colin, for the thoughtful, insightful, and wise work he's done on this. So we don't just go away with a warm feeling of a nice person, but we see what was behind that, the convictions which led to graciousness. And I pray in the name of Jesus, be lifted up in our hearts. Make us effective, gracious, wise. Help us to undermine the, I'm, I'm, I've got convictions because I'm angry 
tendency. And we pray, be lifted up in Colin and the TGC, the extraordinary work they do. Save them from the evil one. Help them to keep resourcing us as we seek to fight the fight. And we pray for Kathy. We don't know her, but we love her. And we pray, establish her, encourage her, build her up. Bless her relationships with the boys and their families. And uh, carry her in these, these unknown years, we pray. Thank you for hearing us. Go with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast, and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours, and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.